I'm Amanda Olberg, Managing Editor of Education Next. We invite you to join this week's Education Next podcast, available online Wednesday morning each week at educationnext.org. Charter schooling and publicly funded pre-K programs have both expanded rapidly over the past two decades, driven by parental demand, supportive laws, and in the case of pre-K, increased state funding. But these two trends have run largely on parallel tracks, with little overlap in terms of the organizations involved or even the constituencies providing the strongest political support. That may be changing, however, with charter schools in a growing number of states expanding to serve students younger than kindergarten. What happens when charter schools take on the task of offering pre-K programs? And what's preventing more of them from doing so? I'm Marty West, Editor-in-Chief of Education Next, and my guest today is Ashley Libetti Mitchell, a senior analyst at Bellwether Education Partners. Ashley is co-author with Sarah Mead of The Charter Model Goes to Preschool, an article that will appear in the winter 2017 issue of the journal and is available now at educationnext.org. Thanks for taking the time to join me today, Ashley. Great. Good to be here. So maybe it's because it's Halloween season, but your article reminded me of the tagline of the old commercial for Reese's Peanut Butter Cups, two great tastes that taste great together. We know that when they're done right, charter schools and pre-K can both have lasting effects on student lives. So why do you think this development that you cover in the article hasn't occurred sooner? There are, uh, I think, a few different reasons. Uh, The primary one is probably, like you mentioned, that uh, charter school policy and pre-K policy have come up or evolved in two completely different paths. Uh, So really, I think part of the reason that they haven't come together sooner is because most people haven't really been paying attention or uh, no one came at this intentionally. Uh, There are a few other reasons more broadly. Um, The first is probably that In K-12, we're not as comfortable with diverse delivery as uh, we have been in the early childhood space. So uh, there's still a lot of conversation about whether charter schools should exist, right? Um, Whereas it's always been like that in early childhood. There's always been a wide variety or a range of providers, public private um, or government run that have had access to public funding and offered uh, offered services. And that seems like it could actually fit quite well with the charter model. The charters could just enter as another of these diverse providers with different governance structures uh, and the like. Well, exactly. And that's why it's so surprising that uh, that we haven't thought of this before, that this hasn't happened sooner. Um, it's also why it's such an interesting possibility because, as you said, preschool is expanding. We're not, uh, they're not always enough seats to serve those children. Uh, and charter schools are another potentially high quality option. So your article discusses a number of barriers that get in the way of charters that are interested in expanding their operations below kindergarten. What are some of the most important ones? So the key barrier there is 
the fact that some state legislation, either explicitly or through interpretation, uh, prohibits charter schools from offering pre-K. Um, and when I say interpretation, an example here could be Arizona. So the state legislation says that schools uh, must offer at least a kindergarten program or any grade between 1 and 12. Um, so the state agencies have interpreted that to mean that charter schools are not permitted to offer pre-K. Even though it's not explicit there, it really, they take the silence in the legislation to mean um, the charters aren't allowed. And are there workarounds for charters in that type of situation? So I could imagine a charter starting a separate organization that would become eligible to provide uh, pre-K services to families and sort of compete for whatever funding pots are available to serve students. Well, yes, Marty, that's exactly right. Um, lots of uh, charter schools um, in states where it's either prohibited or very difficult for charter schools to offer pre-K directly will uh, open affiliated programs, is, is what we call them. So programs that um, are run by the charter school, you know, really for all practical um, purposes, but when it comes to the technical, uh, like te who is technically running the pre-K program, it's a separate entity or separate, often nonprofit. And then I guess the key question that comes up in that setting is whether the charter school would then be allowed to admit students from that technically separate program uh, and give them a preference when they're, say, holding an admission lottery to kindergarten. How have states looked at that question? So I guess there's a few different ways to look at this. Um, many states have decided that charter schools cannot seamlessly enroll their pre-K children into kindergarten. Um, in that case, they will; those students will have to re-enter the enrollment lottery despite having just spent anywhere between, you know, one to two years on that campus with those uh, with those children, kind of run by that school. Um, other places are beginning to uh, make this more of a priority or make this seamless enrollment a priority. New York, for example, previously um, required students to re-enroll into the enrollment lottery in order to enter kindergarten, uh, but recently changed their legislation kind of right around the time that uh, the UPK program, the Universal Pre-K program in New York City came about. And I can imagine not being able to control admission after you've spent a year working with students to be uh, quite a frustration to charters that are interested in expanding in this in this area. Well, and not to mention the fact that most charter schools lose money serving preschoolers. There are very, very, very few states. Uh, really, I think it's only Oklahoma and uh, D.C. that provide enough funding for charter schools to serve preschoolers. And really, it's not even enough funding. It's more the amount of funding that a charter school would receive to serve K-12 students, which, as you know, on the whole is less than what districts receive. So there are, there's an uh, investment um, disincentive there on behalf of charter schools, which is why it's such a huge barrier. Now, one of the other challenges that your article calls attention to uh, is the fact that the approach to regulating quality in pre-K in many states doesn't sort of uh, jibe well with the uh, more output-oriented 
system that we have in mind when it comes to charter schools. Can you give an example of how that plays out? Sure. So the really the attention behind early childhood quality standards, at least initially, was to ensure a bare minimum or a floor level of quality, whereas, you know, charter schools come from a totally different uh, theory of action, right? They assume that if you give schools the, you know, if you widen the ce- or raise the ceiling, then you give schools an opportunity to do what they want and measure the outcome. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a few different places where this has kind of run into, uh, where this conflict has been really obvious. Um, again, New York is a good example with the six, this is what essentially the Success Academy legislation and drama has been about. Um, in order to serve preschoolers under the New York City UPK program, the providers, including charter schools, needed to sign a contract with the district saying that they would allow the district to measure these traditional quality standards. So things like 35 square feet per child and uh, not allowing uh, coats to touch in a cubby area. So these input-focused standards that arguably have nothing to do with the quality of the outcomes. Um, Success Academy, starting as a charter school and moving down, took offense to these uh, to these standards and didn't want to sign the contract and and didn't. So they uh, aren't offering the the UPK program officially. Um, and so there's, this is a, a great example of a loss of poten- a potentially high quality provider. Um, in a time when New York City is struggling for seats um, that was lost because of one of these barriers. Now, your article takes a close look at some charters that are trying to offer pre-K in a number of different states, California and New York. And the one region that you highlight as a success is the District of Columbia. So tell us a little bit about what makes Washington, D.C. unique. So there's, there's two big things. The first um, is that D.C. charter schools that offer preschool um, receive per-pupil funding for four-year-olds through the, the student funding formula. Um, embedded in that is the fact that charter schools uh, also receive you know, much more than the traditional uh, per-pupil funding for, for preschool. So in Nevada, for example, a school district or a preschool provider would receive about $2,800 per per child that they serve, whereas in D.C., the baseline, the absolute minimum that they would receive is, I think, about $12,000. So that's just what any elementary school would get for a kindergartner or first grader. Yeah, and actually, depending on what student population you serve, you may end up getting more. So if you serve a high-need population, there's a different set of allocations. So the generosity of funding is one difference. What's the other key aspect of D.C.'s approach? Um, It's the accountability structure. So uh, the District of Columbia Public Charter School Board um, has a completely separate system um, or framework to hold charter schools that serve preschoolers accountable. Um, 
it's based on some of the traditional quality standards that we that we talked about, so things that capture health and safety. But it also looks at things that are based in evidence to potentially lead to uh, improved child outcomes. So things like teacher-child interaction and uh, school climate. There's also an, an explicit looking at, or uh, it's explicitly included uh, kindergarten readiness or, or student outcomes. So in a lot of places, in fact, most places, the authorizer is largely absent from these conversations. And in DC, that's, that's not the case, which is very exciting. So nearly every charter elementary school in D.C. now offers pre-K, as I understand it. Yep, that's right. And uh, there are actually a few. The, the, the reason why the D.C. Um, uh, structure is so interesting is because it also offers the autonomy for other types of programs. So there are pre-K-only charter schools that have been, Apple Tree Early Learning, for example, is widely or nationally recognized as a great charter school. There's also others that have... Um, adult ed and early childhood programs. So it's we're very, it really creates the flexibility to move out of the traditional view of what school is. And maybe bringing that approach to school governance into the pre-K setting where, as you've mentioned, we've had something of a market-oriented approach, but perhaps not a regulatory framework that always results in consistent quality. Well, exactly. And, and this is a uh, conversation that we very often have in the early childhood spaces. How are you defining quality and how are you measuring quality? And I really do think that uh, the charter structure is is a way to learn from that. So charter schools obviously have a lot to learn from the early childhood space, but I think it can go both ways. So Ashley, after looking closely at this issue in three different states, California, New York City, and Washington, D.C., if we pull back and think nationally, where do you expect policy in this area to uh, head, and um, what will where where should it head? So this this question is really interesting because pre-K or a push for early childhood care is you know a traditionally blue or democratic venture, um, but it is because it has such a strong body of research, um, and because it is just very politically palatable generally, um, it's gotten bipartisan support. Yeah, there have been a number of Republican states that have made substantial investments in pre-K, Oklahoma, Georgia, and the like. Exactly. Oklahoma is a great example because it was one of the earliest places to offer universal pre-K for four-year-olds. And so I think that when you add in the chartering aspect of it, the uh, flexibility and accountability and focus on outcomes, and it becomes even more uh, of a bipartisan um, of a bipartisan option. I think that there are a few things that need to be handled carefully. Um, for example, you know, when you look at certain charter sectors that are not uniformly high performing or even um, primarily high performing, there's a concern there that. We just want to turn pre-K over to, you know, these low performers. Um, and, and really that's obviously not what I think should happen or what, what we're proposing in the article. It's more that a high-performing charter school is a, another high-quality option within a diverse ecosystem of potential options. 
Excellent. Well, uh, I think your article makes a compelling case that there's a lot of potential in this area, and I hope that some states decide to uh, make sure the right conditions are in place and then take advantage of it. Agreed. My guest today has been Ashley Labetti Mitchell. You can find her article, The Charter Model Goes to Preschool, in the winter 2017 issue of the journal and now on the journal's website at educationnext.org. Ashley, thanks for taking the time to join me today. Thanks, Marty. Thank you for tuning in to Education Next's weekly podcast, released every Wednesday morning. For more on education reform, visit us online, educationnext.org.